Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. The podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I'm Patrick Beeman, um, your host or occasional host, uh, founding host. I haven't been um, on the show here in a, in a little bit, but I'm back and I'm joined today by Dr. Max Cooper, who is the founder of uh, Da Vinci Academy, which is a platform that we will be telling you about. Um, and today we want to go through um, a little bit about Da Vinci Academy, some of the things we're working on together. Um, and then, of course, uh, at the second part of this uh, interview, we'll uh, cover a case on um, reproductive pathology. So, thanks, Patrick. Appreciate you having me on here. Absolutely. Well, thank you for uh, you know reaching out. Um, I it, it's been a pleasure to you know have the conversations that we've had over the past like month or two. And and look, you have me back sitting in the uh, in in the studio slash my basement, which is now redone. Um, so that it makes a recording environment nice and pleasant. Uh, so I will mention on that note, if you would like to see my recording setup uh, and my sweet new Zoom background, as well as, more importantly, this presentation, um, the video associated with it, um, just head over to Da Vinci Academy's YouTube, which is... Uh, YouTube.com slash Da Vinci Academy Med. All right, perfect. All right, so... Max, you went to the University of Toledo College of Medicine, just like me, right? That's right. That's right. All right. And uh, how did you get into medical education? What uh, was your interest? So I, I was a peer tutor for a long time, both in uh, undergraduate. I taught you know chemistry, organic chemistry, biochem, and then carried that through into medical school where um, I, too, I really enjoyed the anatomy course. As you know, Toledo had a pretty bus anatomy course. Uh, so I tutored that for three years and really enjoyed it and got really positive feedback from uh, the students that I worked with in my sessions. Um, thankfully, they were they got a lot out of it from uh, the positive feedback. And then what got me into doing uh, kind of going at a larger scale was, you know, I wanted to take kind of the way I was teaching things and bring that to a larger audience. And what's really been nice through DaVinci Academy is to, and you, you know, you can appreciate this as well, Patrick, through what you've done with Inside the Boards is that you can not only, you know, help students at your own school, but help students, you know, across the country and across different programs and even, you know, some international students as well that are, that are using our, our, our stuff, which is really gratifying for sure. Yeah, totally. So, Hey, was Dr. Yeasting still there? Yeah. Yeah. He was still there. Yeah. He, I think he retired like a year after I took, we oh, took our anatomy course. Yeah. That dude had to be like a hundred years old. 
Like for real, he was up there. And, you know, the biggest shock of um, anatomy, which was our second uh, class and in a uh, first year, if I remember, um, at least uh, is still, it was still like that. Cause I, I started in 2006 and you started when? I started in, I think 2015, I think I want to say 2016. So it's, it's hard to keep track these days. <laughs> Holy crap. Shit. <laughs> um, man, that's crazy. But you know, he always dissected without gloves. That's oh, right. Like, yeah, he did. Like pretty much all the time. I thought that was so weird. But he was a really good guy. He 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 knew a lot. He knew a lot about anatomy. He was um, a baller in there, man. Like if you had is. trouble finding something, I mean, he'd stick his bare hand in there and he'd find it like in five yep. seconds. <laughs> yep. It didn't matter what cavity it was. <laughs> that that sounds probably so disturbing to like people listening to this. Um, he, he seemed like a normal guy. We even created a Facebook group. Like you know, this was two thousand six, so it was early-ish for Facebook um, called Yeasting's Little Ones. Um, I, I forget why, though. I think it was, I think he often said, like, little one, referring to, like, uh, embryos or something. Um, I, I don't know. I just saw it pop up on Facebook not too long ago. Um, oh, it's still up there? <laughs> yeah, it's still, like, up there. Um, I, I think the, the prompt was like, hey, what are you doing with your group? <laughs> Nothing. All right, so you enjoy anatomy then? Yeah, yeah, I would say anatomy was was definitely one of my favorite, and it makes sense. You know, I went in as you know, I'm a radiology resident at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. So obviously, I have to carry on knowing anatomy into that as well. And then for many of the interventional procedures as well, you have to have a good, you know, three dimensional sense of of anatomical structures as well to do that. So, um, so yeah, no, it's it makes sense that I carried that on into you know, what I do now. Yeah. And, uh, how's, uh, your first year residency gone or your, uh, second year residency gone? Yeah. So I did my, my transitional year. So that was a lot of medicine and some surgery and ICUs and all that kind of stuff. And now it's radiology. So it's, it's good. It's, you know, it's a little bit better schedule, especially on the diagnostic rotations, but it's a steep learning curve for sure. It's funny. Uh, I'm trying to find ways to possibly innovate in education for radiologists as well. Cause it's, um, it's one that's a steep learning curve, especially for when you're starting out, but it's cool. It's cool to learn all the different modalities and then, you know, learn radiological anatomy, which is actually a little bit different, uh, not quite the same as the gross lab. Uh, so yeah, I'm enjoying it so far for sure. All right. So while we're here though, um, for the like first, second years listening to this, um, what, what should they think about? What's notable about uh, going into radiology in 2022? Like any pearls of wisdom, as they say? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think going into radiology, it's it's becoming a more popular field. Uh, we had a significant increase in applicants this year compared to last year, which I think everyone's trying to kind of figure out why still. Um, but I think if you want to go into radiology, it's um, definitely try to do a rotation during your third year. I know a lot of people do it during the fourth year. Um, you know, cause it's kind of a chiller rotation and good for interview season and stuff, but I think it's good to just with anything to get exposure to it. So if you're interested in it, get exposure and it's a good rotation to do. I think even if you don't do radiology end up, or end up doing radiology, because, you know, as you know, almost every hospital, unless you're like a dermatologist, every, almost every patient in the hospital gets radiology imaging done. So it's good to have at least some kind of foundational understanding of that. So yeah, that's one. And then I think two would be, um, you know, 
research always helps, obviously, you know, getting to know people in the department and things like that. And then uh, doing your away rotations as, as a fourth year, I think can help as well, especially if you want to do interventional radiology, which is becoming more and more popular and more competitive. Uh, so if you want to do that, I would say you pretty much have to, at this point, it's kind of gotten into the same league as like ortho or neurosurge or plastics in that regard. And that's the same thing, you know, doing, doing research, getting to know people, people that can advocate for you, I think is probably the key for that. What about uh, studying radiology? Um, what is, are there any notable like uh, resources out there or um, something you could recommend if somebody just wanted to like, I don't know, learn on their extra time or something? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think for medical students, Radiopedia is a really good resource. Oh, that's right. Yeah, We, we actually, even as residents, we use that a lot, but I think it'd be even good for medical students because it's kind of like the Wikipedia of radiology, if you will. Uh, it's kind of clever how they named it. And it's nice because there's a lot of good example cases and pictures that go with the different pathology that you would look up. There's the university, I think it's University of Wisconsin, I want to say, either them or it's Medical College of Wisconsin. It's one of those two. Somewhere in Wisconsin, they're producing some good radiology education sites. They're called uh, Learn Neuroradiology. Another one's kind of Learn Head and Neck. Another one's Learn Abdominal Imaging.com. Those are all really good websites that have good example cases. And they go through the anatomy too, which is really helpful. Because uh, like I said, even if you know your anatomy fairly well, you know, in med school, it, it can be a little bit, uh, a little bit different terrain trying to apply that to radiology because everything's grayscale. And, you know, sometimes some things are in 2d, like, you know, for plant films and stuff like that. Um, and then one of my attendings here has a really good YouTube channel. It's pretty popular called, uh, learn neuroradiology, uh, as well. So that's, um, people can check that as well, as well. Cool. Thanks. All right. So, you, you take anatomy, you're tutoring, you realize like um, you enjoy it and uh, you're effective at communicating anatomy stuff and also biochemistry and histology, right? Or did you not tutor in those? No, I did. And anatomy you was did. the main one. And then, I, yeah, I did histology because I had, I had done a master's course or master's degree before med school and I took a pretty intense semester long histology course. So I had gotten a little bit a leg up on that, if you will, before med school. And then the rest of it was in physiology. So I tutored some physiology in med school as well, which I really enjoyed. Um, and then some biochemistry too, like you said. Man, nothing, I mean, for real, like literally nothing is more effective at helping somebody learn than to teach it, you know? Which is why if you're interested in, uh, you know, learning even more, um, come on to the podcast, you know, shoot us an email uh, to like info at inside if you'd like to contribute as a host to this show um, or do other sorts of work that um, involves uh, helping your other uh, fellow students learn. Um, we'd appreciate it and, uh, it, it would for real help you. So, um, all right. What made you start Da Vinci Academy? Like there's enough meta like companies out there. So why do we need another one? <laughs> that's a, that's a great question. Um, I would say that I think the way I taught things that made it popular was I used, tr just tried to make this as clinically applicable as possible. The material that we learn. Um, similar to what you do with inside the boards with all your cases, um, with your audio cases and audio cue banks. Um, but I try to use, and I found that's what students really liked. I went through cases during my sessions, my tutor, even in the cadaver lab and stuff, which I think was a little bit unique. Not as many tutors did that type of thing. Um, because I think at the end of the day, you want to remind people like, why are we learning this stuff? Like, it's not just an academic exercise. Like 
you know, like I was saying, I use that anatomy I learned all those years ago in the anatomy lab still to this day, just like, you know, yourself, you use pelvic anatomy and, you know, an abdominal anatomy as an OB-GYN. So, yeah, I, I felt like I wanted to, you know, take that focus and then also focus on subjects that weren't as heavily covered in some, obviously there's the giants of Goyon and Pathoma that cover pathology. And, you know, there's some great resources out there for physiology. So I focused on anatomy because I felt like that kind of was antiquated. Like a lot of those books are like 1200 pages. So I wanted to make, I wrote my partner and I, who did this, wrote a book that was about 300 pages um, that was outline format. So much easier to read uh, over 400 images, both radiology and uh, just diagrams and things like that. And then made a set of videos to really kind of use that uh, explanation. And for every chapter, we, you know, we lay out what you need to know, but we really hit the clinical pearls, like the basically the clinical scenarios that you're going to get tested on, whether it's your anatomy exams, your board exams, some stuff you need to know uh, on the rotations as a third year. Um, so we definitely wanted to hit that as well. Um, and then people liked that. So then we took it into biochemistry, which is another subject we felt like did not you know, have that many great uh, comprehensive resources. And so we did the same type of style for that. And then recently we've, as you know, we've partnered with University of Colorado School of Medicine, the histology course director or block director there, Dr. Lisa Lee, and we produced a uh, histology course, which is very comprehensive, which I really felt was lacking. I was really glad to partner with her on that because she has a great image bank and just years of experience teaching just histology, which is pretty cool. And so we have practice questions. And, and I think one of the coolest features of that resource is we have these lab videos that literally is like a, an instructor taking you through a histology slide saying, this is this, this is why it looks like this. This is how you can know this. Cause I felt like for the practicals, especially there was, there was a lot of like, there's a lot of great image banks out there, but no one takes you through it. No one really shows you unless you have a great teacher uh, at your school, no one takes you through it. So that was kind yeah. of the, the long story short, that's how we kind of got to where we are now. <laughs> All right, cool. All right. So Da Vinci Academy then, um, what do you guys do practically? Like, what do you offer students um, in the nitty gritty terms? Yeah, so that's a great question. So we offer a variety of things. We offer uh, online video courses in anatomy, histology, and biochemistry. And we have corresponding uh, both electronic and paperback books, which if, uh, whichever version you like for those uh, courses. So what's nice about that, you can watch the videos and not have to really write anything down um, and have the images right in front of you. We also offer a series, as you know, called Da Vinci Cases, uh, which is on YouTube. And then we have the audio on you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to, podca or listen to podcasts or audio, um, which has become very popular. Um, and it's uh, basically where we take a case and we'll kind of show us, show later how we do this, but uh, we take a case and break down the question stem and really show you what you should be getting from really every line of the question. Um, Cause I feel like, and you probably agree every, every line kind of has a meaning. There's, there's usually a purpose to everything that's put in there. Um, even if it's a distractor um, and then going through the concepts before we answer the question. And then we come back, take those concepts and show you how to answer the question, then why, you know, the right answer is right. And why the, the other answers are wrong. And then the most recent thing we've been doing is uh, kind of venturing further into the podcast territory is the Da Vinci Hour podcast, which is something I've been really excited about and kind of ramped up over the last six months, which is interview style podcasts where we you know, interview physicians from a variety of fields and really try to give students and you know, 
you know, at really anyone, an inside look of what these people's lives are really like, you know, you get a picture of it, a snapshot, if you will, on your rotations. But, you know, we ask the questions that, you know, people want to know the answers to, and maybe med students might be afraid to like, what is call really like, what are the hours really like, you know, those types of things that, which I think is wrong. I think some people might fault you for asking that, but it's really, you need to know the answers. You need to make informed decisions on, you know, what specialty you're going into um, as well. And then we also try to, we've kind of evolved to where we interview guests that have really interesting experiences or, or passions outside of their clinical work. So we've had people that have written uh, published books. We've had people that do really innovative things with like medical devices. Uh, we've had recently a guest on who uh, runs like an AI type company for dermatology, which is really interesting. And then um, just a number of other types of things. So people that are kind of doing unique and exciting things. Cool. So listen to the Da Vinci Hour um, to help you think about the sorts of things you need to consider um, prior to applying to residency. And and probably my guess would be this would be applicable to even like residents um, to a certain degree who are trying to uh, discern the best career path. Because as people may or may not know, um, I... Yes, I am board certified as an obstetrician and gynecologist, um, but I'm also currently pursuing board certification in addiction medicine through a practice pathway that's available um, until 2025, I believe. Um, And at the same time, I have two companies, this education company inside the boards and uh, Ars Longa Media, which is like a podcast, well, we say a health media and creativity company. Um, that's not exactly standard (laughs) for, uh, physicians, you know? So, uh, definitely I encourage anybody who has, um, you know, more than, more than one interest, like significant interest, um, to, to really interrogate, you know, their motivations and their reasons for choosing this or that, especially whatever it is. Um, but to really ask those questions, uh, the, the, you really don't know, um, I guess to find what those questions are that you don't really know as a medical student, it's, it's honestly amazing. Like even as a resident, you like don't get certain things and their importance and relevance until you're an attending. Um, and it's a lot of like practical things. I mean, medicine right now is insane. Like we were talking about this on Friday night, right? Like the, there's just so many things like I, to me, it's crazy that many physicians, you know, who are employed by hospitals have no idea how much money they generate through their clinical activities. And, you know, if you bring in essentially a million dollars a year or something like that, um, or 500,000, um, or more, um, don't you think it'd be important to know that when, uh, thinking about like how much you should be compensated and whether or not it's fair. Um, I mean, there, there like, seems pretty basic. Um, but, uh, there's just like so many different things that are absolutely driving me nuts. It's like impossible to figure out like as an OBGYN right now, and I'll sit for these addiction boards in October, and I think the results will be out by like February 2023. Um, 
meantime, I do hospitalist work as an OB, OB hospitalist work, and um, I'm the medical director for a, an opioid treatment program. Okay, so I have these two very separate almost worlds. Now, if I get a patient who is a man who, I don't know, has a, a cellulitis or something that needs an antibiotic, um, it's been really, I, I can't figure out the appropriate way to get professional liability insurance um, to cover me in case that person has like an allergic reaction, for instance. Um, and there is not really a good mechanism for things of this nature within modern uh, healthcare, and uh, we need to change that. So, yeah, I, I could drone on, but basically, we are reinventing, reimagining, reconceiving inside the boards at the present moment. Um, we want to bring you a lot more content, and we want to work with other you know, people in the education space or other spaces more broadly within healthcare. Um, I don't want to say to start a revolution, um, but I don't want to not say that either. Uh, but there are definitely some things that need shaken up. Um, I mean, what over 50% of attendings describe like burnout symptoms Every medical student who's listening to this, I'm certain, has at some point seriously questioned in a way that other, you know, of their friends in different, you know, sectors don't, whether or not they made the right choice going into this, ask themselves whether or not it's worth it to learn this anatomy. What is it, like uh, April? So, you know, you got first years kind of getting to the end of, of their uh, first year uh, academic year. And, you know, there's lots of existential crises. Um, I can tell you, there are many more opportunities for existential crises as you progress throughout medical education, if you are a first year listening to this. And hopefully people like me and, and Max and um, just like, you know, your average doctor out there who's starting out as an attending or something can help better the culture of medical education so that it's more humane, makes more sense, is more fulfilling, and most importantly, sticks to the original reason, you know, supports the original reason why most of us go into this, which is to help people. Um, but yeah, uh, that'll be another probably uh, podcast episode. I don't know where we'll put that, um, but no, I think those are all important things you're making. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, I even as you, sh I'm sure you see it. You see it in residency, people question like the field they went into. They question even very early on. I remember last year as an intern, people questioning why should they've even done this. And you see people leave. Even you see people go and do other things. Like they just they just can't do it anymore. Or like you know, especially people that go on match to like they go through the match cycle. You know, because that just that just beats that just beats the life out of you. If, you have to do that. And so it's just brutal. Like, I, I don't necessarily know the right answers right at this point. I have some, some thoughts, some ideas, but, um, I agree with you. I think there needs to be some, some changes in how, in just the culture and the, in the culture and then even how some things are done as well. It's, it's not the best. We, we don't support ourselves, each other enough as, as physicians. It's, it's not, uh, 
I think it needs that's something we all need to improve on. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And that's I think that's why we um you know really came together um our plans uh you know as DaVinci Academy and inside the boards as separate entities is um to work together as friends and and to yeah, like I mean <laughs> another thing Med students don't learn anything about business, but like 80% of you are going to need to know a shit ton about business stuff, which is just general things, you know, everything from communication to, you know, management aspects to um, taxes and basic, you know, accounting and finance understanding. Like, I, I'm not crazy saying this, like... Forewarned is forearmed, um, and and you know you, you can you can work together partnerships. There's another one like how to build good partnerships, how to network. Um, I think it all comes down to healthy relationships, um, and you can tell uh, you probably tell what's an unhealthy relationship by just like looking around you on the wards or um, you know just in certain educational settings. Um, but you know, it's important to define what those boundaries are and we plan to work together, um, to help one another, help you guys, um, starting a business, running a business, maintaining a business is a lot of work. Um, I spent, you know, two hours before this call trying to figure out which Ohio, uh, state tax that inside the boards had to pay because it, it sounds simple, um, but it is not. Uh, uh, but uh, pearl, pearl or nugget of wisdom, um, Ohio does not have an electronic payment system for pass-through entities or LLCs where... <laughs> <laughs> took me forever to just find that like somewhere it was ridiculous um but all right well we'll continue back back more to medical education so um what so people should go to your website and sign up for one of your courses um to learn anatomy histology and biochem um, as the current offerings, right? So what is your website? So the URL is dviacademy.com. And so that's where you can find all of our, our offerings. You can find DaVinci cases there as well. You can find there's a whole subpage developed to, devoted to the DaVinci Hour podcast with links out to all the different listening platforms. Um, and you can sign up for a free membership and, and just view some sample videos and, and PDFs from our books. Um, if you want to just take a just kind of take a taste of what we have to offer. And then uh, you can also just follow the cases. One advantage of that is we post the cases early on our website versus the YouTube. You kind of have to wait every week. Um, and so if you join the, the free membership program, you can get early access to the cases, which is pretty cool. Um, and then you can get each of those subjects you mentioned by themselves, or you can get combo packages where it kind of helps yourself save some money um, and, you know, learn more than what, if you're, you know, doing like an organ systems type uh, uh, curriculum and you want to learn anatomy and histology together, you know, when we have some organ organization to where you can kind of easily find like the cardiac histology and the cardiac anatomy and, and kind of, you know, watch those simultaneously or not simultaneously, but you know what I mean? Sequentially to help 
you know, better your understanding of the cardiovascular system in that case. Okay. So final question, uh, Da Vinci, why, why Da Vinci is the name? I can't believe I forgot to, uh, ask that, uh, earlier. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's, I think I was the one that came up with the name. We, you know, we kicked him around a bunch of different names. Um, I just felt like Da Vinci was in, he was one of those few people that was like the master of everything. He was, <laughs> um, he, you know, was both good at, you know, art. He was good at medicine. He was good at anatomy. Um, I think that was probably the, the impetus for was, you know, originally started with anatomy and he's considered one of the, you know, the greatest anatomists and then illustrators as well of all time. Um, but then also we wanted to be a company that offered a diverse, uh, set of things, you know, be kind of excel in multiple areas and offer, you know, quality, you know, at the end of the day, we always want to, we want to just offer things that really benefit people. Um, and so, Thankfully, we've been able to do that in multiple different ways. So trying to hold true to our our name as, as Da Vinci Academy. All right, cool. So check out Da Vinci Academy. Check out the uh, Da Vinci Academy's uh, courses that you can purchase on the website, cases on the website or YouTube, um, and uh, also audio form on uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. And then what I miss, uh, Da Vinci Hour. Um, you know, the, the interviews for learning those questions you need to ask as you progress throughout your medical career. All right. So what's a Da Vinci case? I think, uh, the idea for what these are is, is what we're going to get into now and, um, preview our plans with inside the boards in uh, Da Vinci Academy, uh, in the immediate future is we are going to co-create a, um, set of cases, a sort of curriculum for pathology content and ethics content that we'll be collaborating on together. Um, so this is going to be an example of the pathology case. Um, we have never talked or we've never recorded content before. Um, so that we're just kind of like trying to figure out what the flow will work like here and so if you have any suggestions, feedback, criticisms, whatevs, um, just, you know, DM us on social or email us. You can email us at info at inside the boards.com or email max at. Yeah. You can email us at, uh, support at dviacademy.com. That's, that's, uh, the best way to send that type of information to us. And I would say too, if you want to help with either of those projects, ethics or pathology, uh, I can't off the top of my mind think exactly what we could use help with, but uh, it's always nice to be able to interact with med students from my perspective, because now that I'm like private, I don't get to interact with med students like day to day, which um, has, has been a loss uh, for my professional satisfaction in life uh, because I don't know, I just, I get energized by, you know, the next generation, I guess I can say now that I'll be 37 this month. Um, <laughs> but uh, all right, so let's get into this. Uh, let's get into our case for today, the inaugural Da Vinci ITB case. So um, just kind of the format again, I think I alluded to this. So we'll have, you know, a USMLE style case uh, with a question, obviously. So we'll go through the case. Uh, Patrick and I will, will go through it. This is a female reproductive pathology case. So Patrick's going to lend me a little bit of his expertise as well as we go through this. Um, we'll summarize the key findings 
Then we'll take a minute, kind of go through one of the concepts that's relevant to the question, and then we'll come back and go through the answer choices and, and tell you why the, the right answer is right and the wrong answer is wrong. Um, so I'll kick it off here with the first case. Um, so a 32-year-old African-American female, uh, G1P1, presents to the outpatient clinic for chronic pelvic pain and heavier menses for the past four months. So I think, you know, with this first opening line, often, you know, that's where you can deduce a lot of information. One, this is a younger woman. Um, she's African-American. Um, again, like I was saying, these questions often, their things are often put there for a reason. So you want to pay attention to race because there's, you know, certain conditions that can be, you know, that certain races are at higher risk for. So you want to just keep that kind of in the back of your mind as you go through the question. Um, chronic pelvic pain and heavier menses, um, as Patrick can, can tell you, I'm sure from his uh, his clinic experience, there's a number of things that, that can cause that. Um, but I think what's key to, you know, in any of these types of presentations to pay attention to also is the time, the, the time frame. So this isn't something that just woke her up in the middle of the night and made her come to the ER. It's also not something that's only happened for a few days. Like, so she's, she, you know, it's four months. She's been dealing with this for uh, a significant param, a significant amount of uh, time. So kind of a subacute presentation here. Um, so she gets her vitals in the clinic. They're within normal limits. Um, so that's, you know, again, she's not in, sitting in the emergency room or anything like that. So, you know, she's stable. Physical exam is notable for an enlarged mobile non-tender uterus. Um, so again, the exam, especially the uh, gynecological exam is always important to pay attention to because it can give you a sense of, you know, especially on a uterine exam, if the, if the pathology is particularly affecting the uterus. Um, Patrick, I don't know if you have any commentary on that. I'd be curious what, what your thoughts are. Um, definitely. I've got some things to add, but I would say let's, let's go through the case in its entirety first, and then, uh, I'll come back to it. Um, so continuing on to the labs, the labs are only notable for a hemoglobin of 9.3. So she's, uh, anemic, uh, and then a transvaginal ultrasound reveals multiple intramural, meaning that it's inside the wall of the uterus, solid hypoechoic uterine masses. And just uh, for the med students who maybe haven't done much radiology yet, hypoechoic on ultrasound just means that it's like less bright than the surrounding tissue around you. There's isoechoic where it would be around the same intensity. And then there's hyperechoic where it's uh, brighter than the, the surrounding tissue. Um, so it's a hypoechoic mass. And we'll come back to that, why, why that's important in a second. But um, so we have, we kind of have a sense here. That this is probably, you know, the source of her, you know, both her heavier menses and then her pain as well as that these uh, masses are contributing to that. So the question is, is which of the following is the most likely etiology of this patient's pathology? So this is a classic USMLE two-part question. It assumes that you know what the diagnosis are or have, have deduced the diagnosis. And then it's asking you kind of a follow-up or a secondary question about that diagnosis. Yeah. So in that being said, let's uh, go back and kind of parse this out. So um, you know, I've always advocated, you know, like approaching each question in a standard format, whatever works for you. Um, often on the podcast, I forget to do this, but my intention is always to uh, note what the interrogative or lead in or actual question is first. Um, which here is, which of the following is the most likely etiology of this patient's pathology? Um, okay, so basically, in my own words, what is that? What's causing this patient's problem? All right, so that's what I'm going to be like focused on as I then go through the vignette. 
Um, and now I go back and I'm looking through these sorts of, you know, pertinent pertinent positives and negatives like you were drawing attention to before. And in this case, we've got, you know, like your reproductive age woman who's an African-American. Um, she's a G1P1, uh, which for you preclinical students means she's been pregnant, pregnant once and got a baby out of it. Um, she presents to an outpatient clinic for pelvic pain and heavy menses. All right, so in OBGYN land, um, pelvic pain and abnormal uterine bleeding are some of the most common complaints that we see. So the likely range of um, answers uh, or list of answers that could be causing this um, are, are pretty long uh, with just this information. Um, but we can whittle it down as we continue to go through. Uh, vitals are within normal limits. Okay, cool. So what's that mean? Well, it means uh, if uh, she's anemic, then she's not like decompensated um, because if she were significantly anemic, um, you know, then you're like missing some red blood cells, which means you're missing some oxygen carrying capacity inside your blood, uh, which means your heart rate goes up um, to kind of ensure that homeostatic delivery of oxygen to your tissues. Um, so uh, physical exam is notable for an enlarged, mobile, non-tender uterus. Okay, so a few things here. It's enlarged. Um, what can cause a, a large uterus? Um, you should be thinking about this as you go through the vignette. Uh, large uterus, um, well, you could have a hydatidiform mole, uh, molar pregnancy, which is um, something that, uh, you know, if, I don't know, you look in like a table in a, a review book, um, that, that lists like causes of enlarged uteri. That'll be one of them. Um, but what else? Uh, you can have uh, probably more commonly would be, or excuse me, less commonly would be like um, malignant um, conditions like a leiomyosarcoma, uh, which is a cancerous um, uh, neoplastic uh, condition of uh, the uterine smooth muscle or the myometrium, adenomyosis, which is, you can kind of think of that as like endometriosis of the uterine muscle. Uh, classically, uh, this was worth rem remembering because it shows up in vignettes a lot. Um, the exam for somebody with adenomyosis um, usually is a boggy, like a kind of like a firm but spongiest feeling. Um, a boggy uterus would be adenomyosis. Um, but uh, all right, let me let me pimp you. Enlarged uterus in a reproductive age female without any other information. What should you be thinking? Um, you know, there's there's a couple things definitely, but one thing everybody forgets. Well, I would say that. The initial thing you want to make sure she's not pregnant. Boom. Pregnancy. Don't forget, like many things in um, OBGYN, uh, as far as pain complaints and, and, you know, 
<laughs> palpable things inside the uh, pelvis, uh, pregnancy can you know be a cause. Um, it's uh, it's definitely up there. Um, whether it's an abnormal pregnancy or a normal pregnancy, doesn't matter. You got to think pregnancy as a diagnosis. Um, but the I'm pretty sure the number one cause of an enlarged uterus is uterine lyomyomata or lyomyomas or fibroids. So if her uterus was enlarged, mobile, but tender, I would be thinking adenomyosis, which is kind of just a general enlargement, like I said, like endometriosis of the myometrium, you can think of it like. Um, but this one's enlarged, mobile, and non-tender. Okay. So labs are only notable for a hemoglobin of 9.3. So um, what else could be said about that? Uh, very often women will, their bodies will kind of um, adjust or compensate for chronic anemia. If this were a, you know, chronic blood loss anemia, um, we'd expect to see like what a normocytic or microcytic pattern. So you'd look at the mean um, corpuscular volume less than 70 um, is microcytic um, or uh, you can have a normocytic anemia uh, with iron deficiency anemia, uh, which is uh, what you get with chronic blood, <laughs> chronic blood loss. Um, I've even seen, honestly, people with normal vitals and a history of like heavy bleeding, like bleeding for three months straight um, with like hemoglobins of like five. And it's like, wait, what? It's like, aren't you diz dizzy when you stand up? No. Do you ever get palpitations like your heart's beating too fast or strong? No. Uh, do you have headaches? No. <laughs> Are you short of breath? And it's just like complete negative review of systems. It's like, okay, well, the body's pretty cool. Um, but <laughs> you can't stay like this forever. Um, so you're going to need, you know, something to treat that. Um, all right. And uh, moving on. So she's mildly to moderately anemic. Uh, transvaginal ultrasound shows those intramural or inside the wall, because uh, I believe it's murus is the Latin for wall. Um, solid hypoechoic uterine masses, uh, which is a very typical description for uterine fibroids. So to return, after all that long-winded uh, thinking out loud, which of the following is the most likely etiology of this patient's pathology? Well, here are your answer choices. First up is A, endometrial epithelium, B, myometrial smooth muscle, C, uterine serosa, or D, trophoblastic tissue. All right, so how do you approach these um, when you're kind of, you know, in the heat of the moment uh, on an actual exam? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, you got to think about the underlying pathology and you got to think about like exactly, you know, this is really getting at what the cell line is. So you want to, so sometimes it can be in the name, like adenocarcinoma is obviously going to be like an epithelial uh, thing. Um, and so you, you just have to think about 
you know, just kind of know your underlying pathogenesis and where, where these tumors come from. You know, the other thing you can think about is kind of looking, I always try to look for answer choices right away that might be easy to eliminate. I'm kind of a, a crosser out, you know, I like to cross things out as much as possible. So I think like we were, we were talking is, you know, like uterine serosa, there's not um, too many pathology, I, you know, in your explanation you were giving of all the different causes, I didn't hear too much mention of uterine serosa. So that would make me kind of a little less uh, suspicious of that. Plus like on a transvaginal ultrasound, it's going to be a little hard to see something that's, you know, protruding out from the uterine serosa. That'd be something more you'd see maybe on a CT scan or something like that. Um, trophoblastic tissue that makes me think, you know, maybe she was recently pregnant or, you know, something that would have been a result of a pregnancy and there's no mention of her being pregnant or recently uh, pregnant. I mean, obviously she has a previous pregnancy at some point, but I feel like the question has to be usually on the USMLE, they have to be pretty, pretty direct with that kind of stuff. It's less hazy, like real life is. So I don't see too much mention. So these two right off the bat, I think it kind of comes down to these. I mean, you think inside the wall, so you could think, again, it's kind of hard to discern whether it's endometrial versus myometrial if you're kind of going off that. So again, it's kind of, it gets a little bit down to kind of if you know it or you don't in some some instances, uh, I think. But I feel like 50-50 is not, it's, it's better than 25% when you originally started with. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think what's helpful, um, so a few things about me. One, I'm a slow test taker. Um, I almost always take the full amount of time for a test like my first yeah first couple shelf exams i like actually first three i think i had to like guess on the last like 10 to 15 just because i ran out of time also they only give you a five minute warning at that point which i thought was really dumb because it should be a one minute <laughs> but uh whatever um so there's there's that um but also there's this psychological kind of um, I don't know, uh, cognitive difficulty where, you know, if this vignetted set of transvaginal ultrasound reveals multiple myometrial solid uterine masses, um, which are the following is the most likely etiology of this patient's pathology, I would have been like, oh, I can't pick B, which was the answer, myometrial smooth muscle, because they mentioned that there's a finding in the myometrium. So it's obviously not going to be that because they're trying to trick me. So they're not, that's important to remember. They are not trying to trick you. So what I found was really helpful um, and, and still do is I'm like about to like start studying for yet another exam, uh, this time for addiction is as you go through vignettes, like anything that reflexively jumps out to you as whatever like there's <laughs> i have no real basis for saying this but my own experience and that's that your mind is probably working um you know in the background as it were um we just can't open up our task manager and see like to what degree um our programs are still processing except the one that's you know the window in front of us our our conscious mind but, you know, like if I'm reading through this, I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Pelvic pain and heavy menses, um, African-American female. I know that those findings are definitely fibroids. Um, and then I keep going through and it's like enlarged, mobile, non-tender. Okay, that's 
sounding a lot like, you know, lyomyoma, another word for fibroids. Um, anemia definitely goes with fibroids because they can cause heavy uh, menstrual bleeding. Um, and then this ultimate intramural solid hypoechoic uterine mass um, is is kind of a dead ringer uh, from a diagnostic radiology standpoint. Um, so if I had got if I had not looked at the answer choices, which I highly recommend not looking at them until you can have some sort of answer to the prompt. Um, if you don't, that's okay. But if you can come to the answer choices with a decision rather than having your decision on which answer to pick influenced by what you read, I, I bet you do better. I bet you have less moments that you're like, oh, I know they're trying to trick me or now I'm going to like get worked up and spend five minutes on this one question. You know, these are kind of psychological things you need to work on and, and get practice with and teach yourself um, so that you, you don't get down to 50-50 with every single question because you don't have the confidence which you ought to have. That makes sense. Um, no, I hundred percent agree with you. I, I try to do the same thing and answer the question in my own mind before I get to the choices. Like you said, like similar, similar to yourself. Cause then, like I said, I like to cross answer choices off. And I think if you already have the answer in your mind, that makes that process a lot easier, um, as well. It's definitely reasonable, you know, to be like, okay, I think this is fibroid. And then you look at the, these answer choices and myometrial smooth muscle, you know, like, a. uh, uh, monoclonal proliferation, a benign monoclonal pro proliferation of uterine smooth muscle cells equals a fibroid. So really this is just a term synonymous with fibroid. So I'm zeroing in on that. I mean, it's probably not a bad idea to glance at the other answer choices just to make sure that you didn't miss something. Um, but if you have got to the end of a, a vignette like this and you're like, ah, I'm, I'm looking for fibroids. I'm looking for lyomyoma. Um, and you see this, uh, myometrial smooth muscle is the answer. Boom. Just select it. Move on. I think I'll, I'll, we'll take a minute here going off that if, before we go through the answer choices and just kind of talk, you know, we talked about fibroids or a lyomyoma. Um, and so just to kind of review briefly, like Patrick was mentioning, this is a benign, usually Fibroids almost always are benign, but I think as I say down here, you can have a malignant transformation into a lyomyosarcoma, but that is rare. Let me interject there. I would say that um, the dogma has always been that, uh, here's the thing, if you can th like imagine it happening in the body, it probably can happen. Like uh, honestly, like some of the things like I've, I've seen or, or heard about that, that are pathologies, <laughs> it's like, what? Um, so first up, it, it's a truism. If it can happen, uh, in your mind, it can probably happen in real life, but for the purposes of a medical student or somebody just at like a, a basic medical education level, um, like even up through step three, I would say fibroids are benign. They don't turn into, uh, cancer. And I think that's pretty reliable, but, um, you know, if somebody has a bunch of weight loss and their uterus grew, you know, three times the size within like a month and you see a finding from the radiologist that says multiple intramural um, 
uh, hypoechoic lesions are evidenced, like I wouldn't completely ignore the fact that she's got some cancer symptoms. Um, so just throwing that out there. For sure. No, thank you. Um, and then the presentation we've, we certainly covered that, but you know, as Patrick can attest, sometimes these are even asymptomatic. And even as a radiologist, we see these all the time, like just incidentally on people's CT scans, like abdominal pelvis CTs. I believe it's 70% of women have at least one. Oh, really? It's that high. Okay. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I, I, I guess that doesn't surprise me. I mean, we, we see these all the time, like when we read abdomen and pelvis CTs, especially, um, you know, look, you know, and they're just incidentals heavy vaginal bleeding and or pelvic pain. So they can have one or the other or both like our patient does. Um, the exam is, you know, Patrick explained very well earlier, you know, enlarged can be asymmetric, non-tender. Um, you can have palpable masses, but um, again, you're always going to just eventually get the ultrasound to kind of confirm that. Uh, again, like I was saying, race can be important. It's common in African-American women. And the age range is kind of, you know, very young women to kind of up to middle age. But that being said, you know, as Patrick can attest, this can happen in, you know, people of, of all ages. Again, if you can, if you can think it happens or if you can conceive it, it probably can happen. So you can see women, you know, much older than this. And I imagine even younger than this uh, happening. Another thing that's important is it's estrogen sensitive. So you can have the size increase during pregnancy. Um, it can also decrease after menopause, again, just corresponding. And then this is just a nice image. Those free watching the video, you know, it just kind of shows the position of the fibroids within, you know, the intramural, you know, portion of the uterus with, you know, kind of a giving you a kind of that visual sense of how it arises from the, the smooth muscle of the, of the myometrium. And you can, and also I think what this image shows well is you, you know, often women can have more than one and, you can see them in all, all different types of locations. And, uh, as I think we'll talk about at the end here, I'll curious to talk with Patrick about the kind of the treatment aspect of this at the end here, but you know, these can get very large and cause, make these symptoms even much, much worse, which kind of rely either the OB-GYN or even in our case, the interventional radiologist to, to intervene. Um, so I think that we'll, we can get back to that in a second. Let's just, uh, finish out this question here. So coming back to this, we'll go through the answer choices again. So, um, Endometrial epithelium, you know, endometrial carcinoma or adenomyosis, as Patrick was talking about, can rely, arise from the epithelium itself. Um, also, the thing about cancer, especially endometrial carcinoma, is it's usually, again, anything's possible, but it's, you know, common things being common, it's usually more common in older women, you know, over the age of 55. And I would, I would even say uh, more simply just postmenopausal. Um, yeah, the uh, average age is 51 for menopause, but, but, um, just an, an associated thing to remember as a principle for every specialty um, is postmenopausal bleeding um, is always endometrial cancer until proven otherwise. It's not usually endometrial cancer. Uh, it's usually actually like a loss of estrogen and atrophy of the you know robust um, uh, tissue health. Um, either vaginally or endometrially, um, but, uh, like a loss of estrogen, but, uh, at the same time, it's, it's important enough. And that's the usual presentation for endometrial cancer or endometrial precancer or hyperplasia is postmenopausal bleeding. Um, so remember that that's definitely going to show up on your exams over the years. Yeah, no, I can, I can attest to that. It's recently doing step three. It was on there. <laughs> yep. um, 
So like we said, the answer is myometrial smooth muscle. Cause like I would, you know, I showed on the previous slide, it's, you know, a, uh, uh, neoplasm that arises from the, the myometrial smooth muscle. Um, and then uterine serosa, like we said, not too many, you know, uh, masses that typically originate from there. You can have peritoneal carcinomatosis, which is basically like kind of sprinkling of malignant tissue throughout the peritoneum, which obviously comes in contact with, uh, the uterus and then can be a, a number of things like, uh, ovarian cancer. And then also obviously can be other cancers as well from within the abdominal or pelvic cavities. Um, then you have trophoblastic tissue, kind of like what I was alluding to earlier. This would, this should, uh, trigger in your mind, a choreal carcinoma, which arises from trophoblasts during or after pregnancy. These ones, you're going to see beta HCG is elevated in these patients typically. Um, and so again, like we were saying that, you know, this would be if, if they said the patient was pregnant or had just been pregnant and then, you know, their beta HCG was still through the roof, um, that could have maybe tipped you off towards more towards that answer there. Yeah. Um, trying to think, uh, what's, uh, what other pearls, um, fibroids at least, um, you, you should know it is the most common tumor in females. Um, that's probably worth remembering. Um, the thing about size increase with pregnancy and size decrease with menopause, that's just a general rule. Um, so don't be too fussed if you're on an OBGYN rotation and real life doesn't seem to match that. Um, it's not always uh, the case or uh, not simply the case that because then people will get confused like, wait, they have heavy bleeding and there's fibroids and you gave them, um, you know, estrogen, progesterone in the form of uh, oral contraceptive pills. Like, isn't that going to increase the size of the uh, fibroid? And the answer is no, it usually, usually doesn't, but it's not as simple uh, physiologically or pathophysiologically as as size increases with um, estrogen. Um, it just tends to be that way. I think management could be interesting to talk about, which is a little bit maybe beyond step one, but I think, yeah. uh, you know, definitely there's different from your end, there's different surgical procedures that can be done for this. Um, and then there's a pretty slick endovascular procedure from our end that can be done for this yeah. as well. Um, hyster hysterectomy, obviously the most invasive. Um, and then, you know, there's the myo myo myomectomy, uh, which is, which is well, which from what I understand is, is done, especially if you're trying to preserve fertility. Is it, is that right, Patrick? Yes. Yep. That would be the, uh, go-to indication for that. Um, and myomectomy is simply like removal of the, uh, fibroid tumor itself. So for first year, you know, second year preclinical students, um, you can basically treat the symptoms by giving them medications that will help decrease the bleeding, um, or giving, you know, suggesting some pain meds, uh, if they have pain. Um, but if you're at a point where, for instance, it's so large that they're having trouble having bowel movements, um, I've seen these things like, um, cause hydronephrosis, like cause the kidneys essentially to, to back up, um, because they're compressing the ureters. Um, you know, people can have, uh, difficulty, you know, with, uh, sexual function and intercourse or bladder, uh, function because I mean, 
these mass effects. Uh, it's once you're in, it's all the anatomy. Yeah. It's like you have a uterus and when it's too large, it touches all these things and can cause the, the problems related there too. But usually once you're at that point, like where you, you're, you know, bodily functions, normal functions are affected, then you're moving on to something more invasive. Um, more and more nowadays, the, you know, I think the uh, go-to thing is probably something in the radiology suite uh, because it's less invasive. Um, you don't just usually cut them out, like, for a couple of reasons. One, they're often multiple. Um, you know, there's there's many of them. Um, if you have one, like, big solitary one, that's, you know, a better... A situation to just remove the uh, tumor itself. Um, if you do have a, you know, uh, you do a myomectomy and remove the fibroid, um, that will make the uterine wall weaker. And so if somebody gets pregnant after that, you don't really want them to go into labor. This is more like probably third year, fourth year, maybe even more like OB resident, um, but you don't want them to go into labor. It's it's sort of the situation like a VBAC, like if you've had multiple C-sections, that uterine wall gets weak and it can open up and burst during labor, which creates an emergency. Um, and you can remove the uh, uterus as a whole, which is probably the more common surgical uh, approach that we take. Um, there's a lot of different things you can do. Um, but what about you guys? What can you do? Yeah. So this is, this is a really exciting aspect of, of interventional radiology and, you know, it's, uh, endovascular minimally invasive. Like you said, endovascular just simply means, you know, navigating catheters and wires through the vessels, endo inside vascular vessel. And it's similar to like a cardiac cath as far as access. You know, you, you can either go through the femoral artery and the groin, or you can go through the radial artery and the wrist. That's kind of attending dependent and, and even institution here at Emory. We we do actually a fair amount of these through the radial artery. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's some of yeah some of our many of our attendees were trained at uh, some of the similar places. So I think that has something to do with it. But again, I think it's preference. They. Radial artery, it's a little cleaner, you know, there's not like the groin, there's, there's more like, you know, flora down there and stuff like that. And, um, it's just also like patient comfort as well. Um, so yeah, so we do, we typically do them through radial artery here, maybe different at, at your institution. Um, but then we navigate using fluoroscopy or basically kind of real time x-rays, if you will, um, and contrast dye and kind of do an angiogram to navigate the, the blood vessels for the fibroid. It's pretty wild. Like when you see these things that you know, you see the complex vasculature of these, of these fibroids. And then basically we thread a catheter through the, the vessel through that when we've kind of located the, the feeder vessel, the vessel mainly supplying one of these fibroids and then deploy different, uh, essentially beads that kind of block off the vessel. It's called an embolization. So you basically block off, kind of clot off that blood vessel and just essentially kill the blood supply to the fibroid. And the thought is that, you know, as a result of that, it kind of dies down and quits, you know, acting up and giving, giving the, the patient, uh, 
you know, the issues that it's, that it's causing, whether that's, you know, mass compression or, you know, heavy pain or bleeding. Um, and the results have been pretty, pretty good. We, the patient satisfaction is pretty, pretty high with these procedures. And, and thankfully it's, it's pretty minimally invasive, which is, and usually it's an outpatient procedure it can be done, you know, in the IR suite, the patient goes home the same day, usually, and it can be done with moderate sedation, even, you don't necessarily even need anesthesia. So we're, we're happy to help these patients in, in interventional radiology. Yes. Yeah, so, um, you can um, do a uterine artery embolization for this too, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's that typically the older approach. Yeah, yeah. And then as we've gotten a little bit better with uh, just our imaging and, and techniques, we can navigate down to some of those more finer vessels that supply these things. Yeah, that used to blow my mind though. Like, how can you embolize the uterus and it not die? Um, so that would vex me. It doesn't have to vex you. There's, you know, a lot of collateral circulation, but in the case where you do a uterine artery embolization rather than a specific fibro uterine fibroid embolization, um, the I get, the idea is that the blood flow, I guess, you know, is is significantly lessened and um the fibroid itself um doesn't take as much blood supply as the uterus as a whole. So those collaterals end up, you know, diverting to the organ itself rather than the, um, uh, fibroid or, or something of that, that nature. Um, but, but yes, you can embolize the uterine artery, um, and the uterus will still survive. Um, probably shouldn't get pregnant and there's some other things. Um, but, it is possible. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, yeah. And we're doing the same thing in males now too for uh, BPH, like benign prostatic. So prostate really? artery. Yeah, pro that's the kind of the new hot thing in, in males. It's kind of taking this exact, because this was done Principle. first. Yeah, taking yeah this, exactly. that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. And that, I mean, yeah, the prostate surgery is fraught with a lot more um, morbidity, um, right? Like I think... Uh, I can't remember some of the statistics, but, um, yeah, like, like, like a rectile dysfunction and, and things I like that. Yeah. I think, uh, ED was like a, a relatively large portion. I'm not going to say what, cause I don't exactly remember, but you know, you disrupt that like uh, nerve plexus and, and then, you know, stuff just doesn't communicate to, uh, down there, but, um, you don't see that so much, do you know, with, uh, Prostate artery? No, it's definitely, I mean, I think it theoretically could happen, but I think it's, it's much less than, like you said, if you're, if you're surgically removing it. Um, so there's, there's this big push and we, in IR, we kind of face the the problem of letting people know that we actually, you know, we, we have solutions for some of these, these issues yeah. that in many cases can be, you know, good solutions or even potentially less invasive and less complicated uh, solutions as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Something to think about. It's one of those questions that you probably kind of cover at the Da Vinci Hour uh, show as well, because if I'm wanting to go into OBGYN and, and become like an expert uh, uh, fibroid surgeon, um, and then the IR people are developing non or less invasive, you know, like minimally invasive or more minimally invasive, because we can also do minimally invasive surgery, um, but very minimally invasive procedures to treat some GYN conditions, you know, that will have an impact on the availability of those surgeries. And that's a good thing because, 
you know, the less you do to a patient to solve their problem, the least invasive to the most invasive is uh, always should be the principle. But cool. I'm interested in that prostate thing now. Um, Definitely. As I get older, I know that like 100% of us will eventually, uh, if we live long enough, develop um, some BPH or, or even prostate cancer. So at least I, I don't have to go through a transurethral resection of the prostate when I'm uh, however old that happens to people. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got anything else here? No, I think I think that's it. We covered the full gamut, I think, on this one for uterine fibroids, which is which is pretty cool. I enjoyed that. Yeah, me too. I'm glad I, uh, I learned something here too. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. All right, so coming soon, um, we'll be doing probably some more terse uh what what's the plan we're doing like gonna aim for like 60 pathology cases yeah um, i think something like that yeah like yeah the final yeah. numbers being determined but yeah a, a sizable portion that will be useful for people for sure yeah so uh go check out uh dviacademy.com and uh you know see what da vinci academy is doing We'll be back uh, with more next time um, to help you learn on the go. Um, thanks for listening as always. And, you know, if you have a chance, go review Max's uh, podcast, uh, Da Vinci Hour, because it's always helpful for shows uh, to get reviews. And uh, I will do that too, actually. I have not yet. Hold me to it. I will do the same for you. And, and I'll add that... Uh, for your listeners, we'll give it a nice discount code as well. If they want to are inclined to buy one of our products, they can use the discount code ITB20 and get a 20% discount off of anything we offer. So feel free to use that. Well, thank you. We do appreciate it. So, all right. I'll talk to you later. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.